Amen. Well, thank you, Paul, for that introduction. Let me recall your minds to the year that we have had here in America. It was on the very last day of last year, December 31st, 2019, that the World Health Organization first announced a mysterious pneumonia that was circulating in Wuhan, China. Obviously, in January and February, that moved to the rest of the world. On February 5th, the Senate acquitted President Donald Trump on two articles of impeachment. That was only the third time in American history that a president has been impeached. On February 29th, the former Vice President Joe Biden won the South Carolina primary thanks to an endorsement from Representative Jim Clyburn. And before this, it had really looked like Bernie Sanders would be the Democratic nominee, or at least very likely could be. It would not be until June 5th that Biden officially clinched the nomination, and on August 20th, he was officially accepting that nomination. Of course, March was the month of months, right? March was when everything shut down. And there should have been a number of signals of this earlier on, but for me, I know it actually hit on March 11th when the NBA suspended its season. That's when I said, this must be bigger than I had originally thought. For our own college, we joined many others. Um, for us, it was March 19th where we officially moved the rest of the semester online. We are still praying that that doesn't happen this semester and we can make it till Thanksgiving. Um, so be diligent, wear your masks, all of that. And April is when the recession associated with this pandemic maybe hit its worst moment, and the unemployment rate jumped all the way up to 14.7% according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Compare that to 3.5% in February, or to the height of the Great Recession in October 2009, it was 10%. This was 50% above what it had been during the Great Recession. It has come back now to more like 7.9%, but still, this is very high unemployment, part of a greater recession. On May 31st, George Floyd was killed as he was choked to death for eight minutes and 46 seconds by a police officer. He um, is included on a long and tragic list of lives lost, even restricting ourselves to this year. Ahmaud Arbery on fe February 23rd, Breonna Taylor on March, 13, March 13th, Rayshard Brooks on June 12th, Jacob Blake on August 23rd, and other names could be added as well. This has sparked months of protests and galvanized the Black Lives Matter movement. On September 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and she has now been, um, Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated to replace her on the Supreme Court. Hearings have already begun, and she is likely to be confirmed just before Election Day. On October 2nd, at 1 a.m., Trump announced that he had the coronavirus. On October 8th, the February, the Federal Bureau of Investigation uncovered a plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. And we now stand within two weeks of election day. This is quite the year. Unprecedented is the word I return to again and again. It is that rare time you know you are living through a big event. In my life, there have been two moments that I've known were big events when they happened, September 11th and right now. For most of you in the audience, it's only right now. There are so many events of such weight that have happened this year that Trump's impeachment seems like a distance memory, but that was 2020. The plot to kidnap a sitting governor of the United States have received relatively little press, 
because there's just so much to talk about. Yet all the, the things that I've mentioned have not just been eventful, and unfortunately mostly in tragic ways, but they are also partisan, polarized, highly charged events within our political um, climate. It is no surprise that a presidential campaign and a Supreme Court nomination would be partisan, but even this pandemic and how we react to it has become freighted with political meaning. Among some, wearing masks is a sign of loyalty to the Democrats, and going to the movies might be a show of support for Republicans. So in this moment, the question I want to, us to consider today is, what is a faithful Christian response to this surreal moment in time? As Paul has already indicated, there are powerful reasons to avoid this topic as much as possible, to leave it away, packed in a corner, and go somewhere else. It is said that you should never avoid politics and religion in public because it risks offense or lost friendships. I'm sure many of you gathered here this morning or watching online later. Um, I'm sure our audience includes both diehard Republicans and diehard Democrats. Further, I'm sure there are some here who would love to see more religion in politics and others who would want to see less. So we have a varied audience. We have all this kind of tinderbox moment that could just be primed for explosion. And so there's every reason in the world to step away from the discussion and not attempt to have it. There's every reason except this. It's necessary to have this conversation. Evidently, Paul thinks so as well, but I certainly do. Um, I will take this moment to say, though, if you don't like what I say, blame Paul. And if you like what I say, then, then give me the credit, right? Um, but I, I think we need to have these conversations as Christians um, because we're descending further into further into red versus blue. On social media, our algorithms continue to sort us and nudge us towards listening to people we already agree with. There are major divides between urban and rural, between the coasts and the heartland, between the South and the New England states, between the Midwest and West. We are segregated, segregated by race and economics and education. Increasingly, not only do we live in different neighborhoods, but we watch different shows, listen to different music, and we probably play different video games. I don't know if that's true. I'm not a video game person, but I know it's a big deal. So maybe, maybe there are Republican video games and Democratic video games. I'm not sure. But we belong, and we are being sorted into two Americas that are figuratively at war with each other. And so this is my attempt as a Christian to try to speak into this moment from a middle ground, to, to say something in this difficult time. My attempt, no doubt, will be imperfect, and it is but one of many attempts. I ask if you disagree with me, that you would just come and dialogue and debate with me. I welcome that. But I do think we need to talk to each other about these. And as a Christian, I believe the Bible has wisdom for our time. And specifically, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 30 in particular. My summary, not to give too much away, but my summary of what I think Isaiah is saying is this. Be political, but do not be partisan. And I'll explain those terms as we come to them. Now, when we read the book of Isaiah, we most often don't know what to do with the prophets, but I think it's actually very attuned to our time. So let me give you a little background for Isaiah and Isaiah's message in chapter 30 of Isaiah. As I mentioned earlier, I think 2020 is an unprecedented time, but of course it is only unprecedented for us. History has seen countless plagues, economic disasters, nations in turmoil and infighting, and pitched battles for power. This is nothing new, even if it's new to us. 
And one such time occurred around the year 700 BC, nearly 3,000 years ago now, in the small nation of Judah, part of the ancient Hebrew or Israelite people. This nation was caught between two global superpowers, Assyria in the east and Egypt to the southwest. With Judah, two parties, within Judah, two parties formed. There was the pro-Assyria party. A few decades before this prophecy, um, there was a king by the name of Ahaz, and in his reign, the pro-Assyria party gained power, and the nation of Judah made an alliance with the nation of Assyria, which ultimately saved it from attack by the Assyrians, but depleted Judah of wealth and independence. Resentment to the situation grew over the coming decades, and by the time of King Hezekiah, who is king at the time that this prophecy is given, the pro-Egypt party had gained power, and they decided to break Judah's alliance with Assyria and make one instead with Egypt, hoping that they could align themselves with the other global power. Isaiah's consistent position throughout his ministry, both earlier when some of them were making an alliance with Assyria, and then later when there was a party establishing relations with Egypt, Isaiah said, stay, stay out of it. Don't get involved in these parties and don't get involved in these international part politics. But both parties were too strong and Isaiah was instead left to critique what they had done rather than actually change the course of what Judah did. So let's listen to his message here in Isaiah 30. First of all, what not to do. Don't be partisan. Now, my working definition for partisanship is this an attempt to achieve earthly power through the support of a party or cause. It's an attempt to solve the problems of the world and to get power and to get your way and using a party or a cause to get there. Now, there might be a lot of reasons that we might be partisan in this space. Um, some of it may be simply out of habit. I was born into a democratic household. All my community, my friends are Democrats, so of course I'm a Democrat. Perhaps it's out of a desire for power. Republicans are the party that listen to my interest group. But I think very often what motivates is neither of those two issues, or at least not them primarily. But instead, and this is certainly true of Isaiah's day, it's fear. Fear of the other side. Fear of the future. If my side doesn't win, can you only imagine what they will do, right? And that's what was happening and facing Isaiah in his day. What motivated these two parties was the fear of the Assyrians and the fear of the Egyptians and trying to balance those two fears and to figure out how to best um, satisfy those things. And those who feared Assyria ran to Egypt and those who feared Egypt ran to Assyria. And Isaiah said we need to remain independent, but he lost that debate. But this is the context. Fear is motivating it. So we read in Isaiah 30, verses one through three. Oh, rebellious children, speaking to the pro-Egypt party here, says the Lord, who, car who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but against my will, adding sin to sin, who set out to go to Egypt without asking for my counsel, for God's counsel, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek the shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the protection of, of Pharaoh shall become your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation." Isaiah, and I will just kind of read selections of Isaiah 30, then all of it. So I'll just kind of pick some selections that I think illustrate this. But in Isaiah 30, he, Isaiah picks at least three problems with partisanship that he sees in the pro-Assyria party and the pro-Egypt party of his day. And the first of those problems we see in verses 8 through 11. Partisanship blinds. 
Go now, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, God tells Isaiah, so that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they, the pro-Egypt party in this case, are rebellious people, faithless children, children who do not hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, that is the prophets who see things, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. We want to hear the easy truths. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us not hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. Do not tell us about God. Do not tell us truth. Tell us what we want to hear. That is what the parties say. Not only does it blind, but we also hear how the partisanship can threaten our loyalty to God. And we can see this in a couple of different ways. So I want to return to verse 1, which we've already mentioned before, but I want to follow it a little bit more literally and kind of expand a little bit what verse 1 is saying. So chapter 30, verse 1, we already read, said, O rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, And earlier I said, who make an alliance. And that's usually what most translations say. But literally what it says is who pour out a sacrifice. That is a sacrifice to Egyptian gods. To establish a relationship, to establish alliance in the ancient world, you had to sacrifice to the gods of the other nation that you were making alliance with. And so the people of Judah, who were supposed to worship only their god, went down to Egypt and poured out sacrifices to the gods of the Egyptians in order to make this alliance. And then it goes on to say, but against my will. So this making this alliance was against my will. And it says, adding sin to sin. And it's a little unclear what these two sins are. But I think the most likely idea here is that they're adding the sin of allying with Egypt and adopting the Egyptian gods to the sin that they had already done some decades before of allying with Assyria and adopting the Assyrian gods. To make that alliance was necessarily a religious thing, and it swayed them from worshiping their own God and started worshiping other gods. And in verse 22, I won't read it for you, but you can you know, check it out if you would like, but it's very clear that they had idols in the land and that they were worshiping these foreign gods um, because of these pacts. So partisanship blinds, partisanship threatens our loyalty to God. Isaiah also warns that even if we gain success through partisanship, that success is empty and temporary. He says simply in verse seven, Egypt's health is worthless. Um, The word here, maybe fleeting, might be better. Hevel is the word for breath that appears for a second and then vanishes. You can think of a cold day. You walk outside, you breathe, you see the vapor of your mouth for just a second, and then it's gone. That is the help that Egypt will provide, that temporary help, and it's empty help as well. So for Isaiah, the alliance with Egypt encouraged them, the people, to ignore the wickedness of Egypt, even forget that the Egyptians had enslaved them in the past. Valuing military protection above all else, they began to worship Egyptian gods and live Egyptian sins. But Egypt's support would disappear like a breath in the wind when they needed it most. Now, there's also dangers of partisanship for us. And this is the part of the talk where I'm supposed to tell you how partisanship in our society blinds us, threatens our loyalty to God, and also is only temporary and empty. This is also the part of the talk that I've written, rewritten about five, six, seven, or ten times because I can't, I've been struggling to know how to attack it. On the one hand, if I pick really easy kind of political examples, it will seem meaningless and it won't seem like much is at stake, but I'm convinced a lot is at stake. On the other hand, this is only a short talk, and to really delve into the important issues, there's so much nuance and so many perspectives that we would have to do well 
that I've struggled to kind of jump right into major topics too, even though I think they're there, um, because I don't know that I can handle them adequately in the time that I have. Also, I also know in my audience, I have people who are diehard Republicans, diehard Democrats, and some people who are like, who cares? Or a pox on both sides, I hate this thing. And speaking to, figuring out how to spe speak to all three of those audience and not just sound like I'm kind of rallying one side or the other was also tough. So my solution is only to tell you my story and to invitationally let you listen to my story and see if you can learn something in your own background and worldview. So, how has partisanship blinded me? How have I seen it test loyalty to God? And how have I seen the success being temporary in my life? Let me first start with blinding. I grew up as solidly Republican, evangelical, suburban, middle-class America. That was my background. To me, to be conservative or to say somebody was conservative was a compliment, and to call somebody progressive was an insult. The political right was the home team. And the entire Republican package made sense to me. It intuitively all worked together. I thought the G GOP defended conservative Christian family values, and those went in hand in hand, it seemed with, to me at the time, with being uh, for gun rights, being against taxes, being for the military, being tough on crime, and for limited government. It all sort of worked together for me. Now, I think all of those positions can be defended on various grounds. I think they can all be dis disagreed with on various grounds as well. But to me, what in retrospect seems so alarming is the fact that they fit so well together, and it seemed like synthetically these all should work together. And to pick a specific example among them, I wanna go back to the Second Amendment. Now again, I think there are principled arguments on both sides, but let me just tell you, like, from a cultural standpoint, I hate guns. This is a good way to not ever, like if I ever want to run for public office, which I don't, this is a great way to doom all chances in Kansas, right? Um, I hate guns. Like I have no, there's no attraction to me of, um, of gun ownership or shooting guns or anything like that. Um, my wife is from rural South Dakota and the first time I went to Thanksgiving at her family um, gathering, um, they all took me outside to the family farm and we all just shot guns for a while. And I was like, can we just go back inside and watch like the football games? Like, that's what I would really like to do, but they had to kind of see with it whether I was worthy to join the family. And so for that one day, I went and shot guns and like, I don't know, I did it, but like, it was only to kind of appease the family, basically, which means I'm the most disappointing son-in-law possible for my, my in-laws, um, because it's just, there's no attraction to me. And yet, I was a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment because it was Republican and conservative. And to me, it seemed to just flow from the fact that I was a Christian. Now again, I think there are ways you can defend the Second Amendment and within American politics, but the disjunction between the Jesus who said, turn the other cheek, and the people who support make my day laws, there should be at least some question in our minds about whether those two things naturally flow together. And without getting too political or partisan here, let me just say that I think there's a great resource that Paul um, turned me on to. It's called the AND campaign, like A-N-D, A-N-D, uh, the word AND campaign, that's trying to combine some positions uh, that's typically identified with Democrats and others typically identified with Republicans, and to say this is a good Christian perspective that is and, you know, both Republican and Democrat, both progressive and liberal, but is solidly Christian. So I'd, I'd encourage you to look at that. I think there's some really great advice there. But 
I think this is an illustration in my life of how political parties blinded me to the truth and I wasn't looking at each issue independently. So I'd encourage you, don't just support the entire party's cause, but look at each indep issue independently. And if you're a Christian, ask whether each one fits your Christian values before you ask any other question about it. I've also said it can um, cause problems with your loyalty to God. Here I'm stepping a little bit beside the sort of Republican-Democrat thing and getting into the, the question of how sometimes we can prioritize America above God. Um, and I think that can also be a problem, though we might do it with our cause or various other things as well. But I remember a time at a church I served at um, in the past where, if you don't know it, and I don't think we have it here, but um, there are some churches um, that have both the American flag and then there's a Christian flag that's out there. Many of you might not even be aware of that, but there's like a Christian flag that you can have. And then there's an American flag. And my, the church I was at had both the Christian flag and the um, American flag on the stage on a weekly Sunday service. And there was one week that we were going to have this sort of, it was gonna be a month long thing. And we're gonna have like focus on the other nations of the world. And so from the roof, we hung the flags of other nations. And so, um, the first week of this kind of setup, a number of people apparently walked into the church service and automatically noticed something that violated American etiquette. The flags of foreign nations were on the ceiling higher than the American flag. And that's something you're not supposed to do in America. That's, that's not the etiquette. You always place the American flag higher than the flags of other nations, or at least at their same level. And so that first week, our senior pastor apparently received numerous complaints about the situation. And so the next week, what they did is they then put the American flag way at the top, higher on the ceiling than where the other international flags were. And I walked into the church service that next week and thought, this seems like a problem. Because according to our stated priorities, our visual priorities here, we go America, all the other nations, and oh yeah, Jesus. But there was not a single person who complained about the fact that the Christian flag was lower than the other nation's flags. And nobody noticed it apparently other than me that we eventually put America first, all the other nations second, and Jesus third. And granted, this is only on a visual level, but still, what's the symbolic import of this? And is it not alarming that we noticed a violation of American etiquette, but not a violation apparently of Christian etiquette? Isn't our priority always first to Jesus? as Christians. So that's another place where I think nationalism or patriotism can at times blind our loyalty to God. Finally, the fact that we have only empty or temporary success. Um, it is certainly possible that if you vote for the, a certain party that you will see um, lasting change on earth that will be for good or, or ill might both happen. Um, but very often, even on an earthly level, change that happens will disappear. And I think about some of the major priorities when I was young of, of Bill Clinton. He was the president for some of the time when I was growing up. And a lot of his signature things were a tough on crime bill, uh, balancing the budget, and um, I'm trying to think what other kind of things, reform of the welfare system and everything. All of those are like blown out of the water and completely not even kind of a part of our discourse. The tough on crime bill looks really horrible now and nobody wants to own that tough on crime bill. Our deficits are ballooning. All those sorts of things that Bill Clinton achieved, his signature things, have all basically evaporated. So very likely, um, even if you achieve political success, wait 20 years and it could all be gone. But more importantly, is the fact, and this is going to sort of transition to our kind of the second half eventually, um, which will go faster. <laughs> um, but uh, 
is the fact that, that life here, according to Christians, is temporary and that there's an eternal kingdom that is far more important than anything that happens in America. And in that sense, no matter what, all of our political success, it's worth fighting and it's worth thinking about, but it still is only a temporary thing because there's an eternal kingdom from God and this world is not our ultimate home. So let me transition and I'll go through more quickly, but I think we also get positive advice of what to do. We don't wanna be partisan, but we do wanna be political. And what I mean by political here is that we engage in the civic life of our nation. We, this does not mean we just step back and do nothing. We do engage. And I see a need for godly politics from Isaiah in a couple of different ways. So first, um, ways that we kind of illustrate godly politics is it requires public faithful testimony. And we see this in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 30. Go now, write it before them on a tablet, God instructs Isaiah, and inscribe it on a book so that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. I think there are definitely times where we are all kind of airing our opinions too freely and too easily, but there's also a time where we're silent when we shouldn't be, when there are injustices that are happening that we need to name. And so there are times I think we have to think about that. And when there are evils and grave injustices within America, we need to name those as Christians and be a faithful witness that's public about what's wrong. A second thing that I think we need to look at from Isaiah is that godly politics speaks truthfully about sin and its consequences. I don't feel like I need to illustrate this point very in depth because the first half of the talk was all about Isaiah critiquing the mistakes and the errors of the partisanship ways that he's seen. He was critiquing the sins of the pro-Egypt party and the pro-Assyria party in his own day. So the fact that he told his fellows not to be partisan and not to build these alliances was not at all to say you shouldn't say anything about your political moment. He spoke about the sins he saw and the consequences that came from them. A third thing about godly politics and what we should do is it always recalls us to God and his power. It's a longer section, so I decided not to quote it for you, but at the end of this passage, in verses 27 through 33, we have this whole focus on how God is the one who will defeat the Assyrians, and God is the one who will defeat the Egyptians, and so you don't need to build those earthly alliances to do it, you trust God. And I think that is a helpful reminder for us as well. Again, this world is not our home, and God can act in this world, but if nothing else, this world is only our temporary place. And therefore, we always trust God, and we trust that God is going to bring about his kingdom in time. And so we recall our minds again and again to God and his power. One of the things I, yeah, so... To point out here, if you remember at the start of the talk, I said that I think what was motivating them in their day and often um, those of us in our own day is fear. And I think this point is a particularly powerful antidote to fear, to fear of the other side, to fear of what will happen, to fear of what they will do, is to remember that God reigns and his kingdom, one way or another, will be established in time. One of the things I like to say um, to others, but mostly to myself, because I tend to be like type A, try to accomplish things in life, is I don't need to save the world because Jesus already has, right? If you're a Christian and you believe Jesus is the Messiah and savior of the world, you don't need to save the world. Somebody's done that for you, right? It's not me. And if I tried to save the world, I would screw it up because I'm an imperfect person, human, uh, human being. So we can also remember that I don't need to save the world because Jesus already has. The final point, um, of the need for godly politics and what it promises is this. There is success for a blessed future. 
Isaiah writes this, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust you sh shall be your strength. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up and to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Truly, O people in Zion, inhabitants of Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, God, will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will defile your silver-covered idols and your gold-plated images. You will scatter them like filthy rags. You will say to them, away with you. Overall, the point, the vision Isaiah wants us to capture when we're tempted to join partisanship because we're fearful of the other side, what he wants to say is remember your future. Remember eternity. Remember, overall, I think his point is this. God's got this, right? Be active, do things, you know, speak into your moment, but in the end, it's not up to you to win the day. God's got this. You can trust God. And there are two lines in particular here that I think stand out to me, at least. In verse 21, Isaiah says this, and when you turn to the right and when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And I think this is a beautiful image of how we listen to God, because when I'm out on a trail, I'm picking my own way, right? I'm like, I'm naturally kind of going, I'm looking things, and I want to do it on my own. And this is reminding us that we need to quiet ourselves a little bit and to listen to God, because if we only are following kind of our sight, we'll just kind of go right or left as we see fit. But this is telling us to listen for God and to listen for his directions, because God is right behind us telling us what to do, but very often we just kind of want to plow ahead on our own. Hold back, wait, listen for God, and you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. But the one that even captures me more is verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. This idea of rest this idea of quietness that is our salvation is not the idea of stopping. Hebrew has a word, Shabbat, to stop. It's the word we get Sabbath from, the day of stopping, the day of not doing anything. That's not the word used here. The word used here for rest has more of a sense of, of settled, calm, um, trustingness. And so the point of verse 15 is not to say don't do anything and let others be at work. I think as Christians, we should be in involved in the politics of our day. But the point is, so our, our salvation is not in passivity, but instead it's in the settled, centered, calm trust in God. That's the goal. You're not reaching for things for your own control. You're trusting that God has control and acting within that calm, centered, settled way. So very briefly, just five, some tips, some five, five tips for how political Christians, meaning political here in the good sense, might operate. I would say there, these are the five things we can do. First of all, stand for Christian values first and always. Don't just stand for American values. Don't just stand for Republican values or Democratic values. Make sure your values always start and end with Christ and Christian virtues. Second, I would say we don't work for parties. We work with parties. 
And there are times, I think, where the faithful thing to do might be to stand with the Democrats or it might be to stand with the Republicans. So it doesn't mean you never join a party or you never you know, like campaign for a party or anything like that. But I think it's important to remember that we're always working with parties, but we're not working for the parties because our goal is not to get Democrats or Republicans elected. Our goal is for God's vision for the American society to be accomplished. When it comes to individuals, we always have a binary choice effectively between one candidate and the other. So I would consider this when you're just making your decision of who to vote for. Don't only vote on policy, whether you agree with them not or not. I would encourage you to vote on policy, competence, and character. Fourth, I would encourage you to operate from a settled trust in God, not fear. Whatever happens in two weeks, God's still got control and we still should operate no matter whether Democrats or Republicans win. And finally, work for a better society, but long for God's kingdom. This world is not our ultimate home, and let's work to improve it, but we can always remember that God's kingdom is the one we long for in the consummation. Let me just briefly pray a prayer for our nation to close. Lord God Almighty, you have made all the peoples of the earth for your glory, to serve you in freedom and in peace, Give to the people of our country a zeal for justice and the strength of forbearance, that we may use our liberty in accordance with your gracious will, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and with the Holy Spirit forever, one God, forever and ever. Amen.